thank you, thank you. As you're being seated, if you would, find your copy of God's Word, either turn it on, open it up, and join me in the New Testament book of Romans uh, this morning, the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, if you didn't bring one, there are some in the pew back there in front of you. Uh, we're going to be in the back of that Bible on page 122, Romans chapter 5 this morning. Um, it always amazes me when I stop and think about the persecuted church the areas of our world where it's illegal to be a Christ follower, the areas of our world where it's illegal to gather together under the name of Jesus Christ and worship him, the areas of our world where people can be arrested, killed, deported. It's those areas of the world where the gospel is spreading. And then you look at a Western society like the United States where we have freedom to worship any way we choose and can worship Christ any way we choose and churches are closing their doors and you wonder what in the world? How's that possible? That the areas of the world where Christians are being persecuted is where the gospel is reaching more people than in the areas of the world where it's free. And I wonder if it has something to do with the commitment of the believers. I wonder if it has something to do with somebody looking at somebody saying, this must be really real to you if you're willing to risk your life for it. If you're willing to lay your life down for this, there must be something true to the gospel that you're claiming. Whereas they look at my life and they go, you don't seem any more excited about the gospel than you did the football game last night. You don't seem any more committed to Christ than you do to your kid's baseball team. I, I'm not trying to preach at you this morning. That's, that's me preaching at me. I wear a black silicone wristband around my right wrist that's in the shape of barbed wire. Not because I think it's cool, not because I think it's a fashion statement. I've been wearing it a couple years for two purposes. Number one, I wear it to remind me of the persecuted church and to remind me to pray for the persecuted church so that every time I see it or every time I feel it or every time I adjust it, I'm supposed to think of those that are in parts of our world that are being persecuted and just lift them up in prayer. It's helped me to be reminded to do that. The second reason I wear it is because it opens up conversations. I can't tell you how many people have said, that's a cool bracelet, why do you wear it? And it opens up a conversation to talk to them about the persecuted church, to talk about the church, and quite honestly, to talk about the gospel. I wish that happened more, but it is an awesome opportunity to just remind me that we are to pray for the persecuted church, just not on one Sunday, but they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should be praying for them. We should be lifting them up on a daily basis. We're reminded that everyone has a worldview, that everybody views the world from a particular way. And as Christ followers, we are supposed to have a biblical worldview, a worldview that is starkly different than the vast majority of people in our world. And to hold a biblical worldview is to have consequences in your life. If you genuinely hold to and live by a biblical worldview, there will be consequences in your life. Scripture teaches us that. 
in our Western society, those consequences are relatively benign, as Darren already mentioned. But in some parts of the world, to hold to a biblical worldview is literally a matter of life and death. For the last eight weeks, we've been in a series of messages entitled Own the Vision about a worldview. In particular, what is a biblical worldview? What is it to view the world through the lens of God's Word? What is it to have that worldview and to live by that worldview? Thus, the title, Own the Vision, is not by accident. The title, Own the Vision, isn't just so that we know what a worldview is. The title, Own the Vision, is so that not only will we know what it is, but we will desire to embrace it, and we will desire to live our lives by a biblical understanding. Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, said an individual with a biblical worldview looks at the world and sifts all information through the lens of God's Word. Scripture influences his thinking and behavior, guides his intellect and moral determinations. The Bible is the bedrock that undergirds his entire life. Can we say that? That every decision that I make, I filter through the Word of God? That the Word of God is the very bedrock and foundation of my soul, of my life, of every decision that I make? C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity just as I believe that the sun will rise. I believe the sun will rise not only because I see it, but because through that sunrise I see everything else. Through my walk with Christ, through his word, I see the world and I see everything else. The question I asked eight weeks ago was this, do all professing Christ followers live with a biblical worldview? Do all those who are in churches claiming to be Christ followers actually live with and from a biblical worldview? Do they filter everything through the Bible? Unfortunately and tragically, I would answer that question with an emphatic no. In fact, I would say the vast majority of Christians, even though they claim to be Christ followers, do not live with or from or through a biblical worldview. They certainly do don't, don't do so consistently or intently. Why not? Why don't Christ followers live with a biblical worldview? I gave you several reasons. The first one was this, ignorance. We can't live with a biblical worldview if we don't know what the Bible says. And there is, within our churches, biblical illiteracy. We do not know what the word we claim to be foundation in our life teaches. And we don't know it because we've stopped teaching it. We've stopped using it as the guidepost for life. We've gone off on every other tangent. We've followed every other philosophy in life, but we will not teach and live from the Word of God. And so there are many people in our churches who don't do it because they're ignorant of what it says. Second reason might be this, not only ignorance, but rejection. We might know what it says, we just don't like what it says. And so we've rejected it for something else. Some were just simply, we know what it says, we might even like what it says, but I'm not willing to stand up for it. 
I'm not willing to face the consequence of saying, no, this is what I believe based on what the Word of God says, because we might be chastised, we might be marginalized because of it, and so we're not willing to face that consequence. Some of us are just simply swayed by our circumstances. We're just swayed by a doubting of God's promises in our lives. But a biblical worldview is so vitally important. We've spent eight weeks already on it. We're going to spend three more weeks on it as we head towards Thanksgiving because I want us to understand that how we view the world is very important because how we view the world ends up how we behave within this world. Real quickly, I just want to back up and retrace our steps to get to where we are today by just reviewing quickly the the seven messages that have come before. And you say, wow, I'm getting eight sermons from Pastor Bob today. He can't do one in the time he's given. He's going to give me eight. I'm just going to review the first seven because they build on one another. And some of you haven't been able to be here with us, and it's going to make more sense to you when we get to today's message if you understand the first seven. And some of us just maybe just need to be reminded of where we've come because they all work together. So eight weeks ago, we talked about what is a worldview. We introduced this concept that a worldview is just simply how you see and interpret the world, and everyone has one. Whether they acknowledge it or understand that they have one, everybody views the world through a different lens. And your worldview is just simply what you believe to be real. This is what is real. And what you believe to be real leads to what you think is true. This is what I think is true in life. And what you believe to be true in life leads to your understanding of what is important in life. And what you think is important in life leads to your behavior. Another way to say that is your worldview, what you think is real, leads to your beliefs, what you think is true. Your beliefs lead to your values, what you think are important, and your values are what you act upon. We all have worldviews. And every worldview is based on three major questions. Where did we come from? I don't care what worldview you have, every one of them tries to answer this question. What is the origin of life? What is the meaning of life? Where did life come from? Where did we come from? Number two, what went wrong? Because we look at our world and we see chaos, we look at our world and we see suffering, we look at our world and we see evil, and we have to try to answer where did that come from? Every worldview, what's the origin of life? What went wrong? The third thing, how do we fix it? Every worldview is trying to answer that question. How do we fix what's wrong in our world? We come at it from different directions, but every worldview, what's the meaning of life? What's wrong? How do we fix it? The answers to those questions provide our explanation of life. They provide how we go through and interpret life. You may remember we looked at Acts chapter 17 on that Sunday when Paul went into the city of Athens. And he was disturbed as he went into the city of Athens because he saw that they worshipped idol after idol after idol after idol. And they even had a plaque that said, to an unknown idol. And he was invited to go up where all the philosophers were. And he said, I noticed that you guys are very religious people because of all the idols that are around. I even noticed that you have an idol to an unknown God. And he said, let me introduce to you the one who you worship in ignorance. And he began to explain to them that there is a God who is a creator, who created all things and loves people. And as he did so, some of them scoffed at him. Some of them mocked him. But others said, we want to hear more about what you have to say. And Acts 17 even says that some of them believed 
as a result. As biblical worldview people who understand the truth of God's word, we must present it to a world who some will scoff, some will desire to hear more, and some will come to trust in Christ. Week two, we talked about a revelation. We had to answer the question, where did life come from? Is there a God or is there not a God? Is life all physical or is there a spiritual component to life? And from a biblical worldview, we understand that God is the creator and he has revealed himself to us. Who is this God and what is he like? We looked at Psalm chapter 8, which says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who has displayed your splendor above the heavens? And we talked about the fact that God is transcendent. He is above his creation. He is majestic and he is holy. But then as we kept reading Psalm 8, it says this, When I consider the work of your hands, the heavens, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you made him a little lower than God. This God who is transcendent is also a very imminent. He is very personal. He is a very close God. He made man just a little bit lower than him. This God who has revealed himself as transcendent and imminent. In week three, we said, well, where else does God reveal himself? He reveals himself in the world. That's general revelation. But he also revealed himself specifically in the word of God, the Bible. And a legitimate question that we must be able to answer is, why do you believe the Bible is true? Why do you base your life on this document? Why do you base your life on this ancient manuscript? Why is that manuscript true and another scripture of another uh, religion isn't? How can you base your truth on this? And we said God revealed himself in his word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, we turned our attention to to answer the question, why do you believe the Bible is true? That text says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And you may remember that I gave you five reasons why you can have confidence in the Word of God, why you can have confidence in the authority of the Word of God. And the first one is this, it is historical in nature, not mythical. It's not an allegory, it's not a story, it is history. It is a compilation of eyewitness accounts corroborated by other eyewitness accounts. It is real people who saw it really happen, write it down in the lifetime of other people who saw it and can say, you know what, that's true. It helps us then to explain supernatural events. We can understand natural stuff, we can understand stuff that happens all the time, but when something happens outside of the normal, outside of the natural, when ill people are made well, when lame people can begin to walk, when blind people can begin to see, and when dead people start to rise back to life, natural explanations go away. And we must have an answer to how does that happen. And the Bible gives us the answers to that. It is historical and not mythical. It is a compilation of eyewitness accounts corroborated by other eyewitness accounts explaining supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies. The Old Testament prophesies what takes place in the New Testament. 
The Old Testament tells us that a Messiah is coming. The Old Testament tells us that a Savior is coming. And it gives all kinds of characteristics. It gives all kinds of things that that Messiah is going to do. And how many of them did Jesus Christ fulfill? One of them? Two of them? All of them. And you remember the statistics that I gave you? That the odds of one man fulfilling just two or verse, or verse just three or 13 of them are astronomical. And Jesus Christ fulfilled every last one of them. You can have confidence in your Bible. It is authoritative. It is historical. It is eyewitness accounts giving us explanation to supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And it was inspired by God. God breathed it along. He moved men along to write exactly what he wanted written. Week four, we talked about not only the authority of Scripture, we talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Bible really all I need? Or do I need something else? Is the Bible sufficient for everything that I need? Or do I need something else? Because in the world that we live in today, even in the churches that we attend today, we tend to say, well, the Bible's nice, but you need something else. Is the Bible sufficient? Is it truly all we need? We looked at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. And I'm not going to read that whole passage to you, but you may remember it started this way. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And it gave us eight, or excuse me, six nouns, six uh, verbs, and six adjectives to describe the Word of God. And it helped us to understand that the Word of God is all that we need in our lives. It's all we need to save us. It's all we need to instruct us. It's all we need to delight us. It is all that we need to direct us. It will outlast us. It will protect us. It's all we need to reward us. And it is all we need to warn us away from sin and darkness. Our Word of God is sufficient We then turned our attention in week five to creation. Where did life come from? We've established that there is a God who is transcendent and imminent. We've established that God has revealed himself to us, both in the world and in his word. And what then does the word of God, which we can trust as authoritative and sufficient, teach us about creation? And we went to Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. And you may remember I started that sermon by saying, Pastor, you don't actually believe this literally true, do you? You don't actually believe that the words of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that we know in six literal days, you don't actually believe that's literally true, do you? And my answer is absolutely I do. And I gave you a, a paragraph that you might even remember. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with his voice. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with his voice in six days. In the beginning, God created everything out of nothing with his voice in six days, and it was good, and it was for his glory. What are the ramifications of rejecting Genesis chapter 1 and 2? What are the ramifications of saying, oh, that's just allegorical? That's not really literal. He didn't literally do that. It's just a guide for us. What what are the ramifications in our lives if we reject Genesis chapter 1 and 2? If you do so, you are rejecting the authority of the Word of God. Because at what point do you begin to believe the Bible is literally true if you don't believe Genesis chapter 1 and 2? 
And if you don't believe the Bible is literally true, then did Jesus literally die for you? Did Jesus literally rise for you? Did Jesus literally take your sin away? There is ramifications for not accepting the Word of God. One is that it denies the authority of God. Number two, it dethrones God from his rightful place. And number three, it dehumanizes humanity. It denigrates humanity. It makes humanity less than what God intends it to be. In week six, then, we ask this question. What is man? Who are we? Where did humanity come from? Are we just like the other animals, or are we different than the rest of the animals? Are we different somehow, or are we just like creation? Are we just natural, or are, there, are we spiritual? How, what are we? And we looked at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where it says, let's make man in our own image. In our image, let us make him. And so God made man in his image. He made them male, and he made them female. Man is not something that just came out of the ooze. God created us with his own hand. He formed us out of the ground. He made woman from the side of Adam, and he breathed life into us. He gave us dominion and crowned us with glory. He created us in his image. We can relate to God. We have a conscience. We can say no, and we can say yes to God. All the other things that he created, he created of their kind. But man is one of a kind. It doesn't say we were created of our kind. And he created them. Isn't this interesting? Throughout all the things that he created, plants, animals, birds, bees, all of it, he never said one of those was created male and female. But when he got to man, he said he created them very specifically male and female. As if someday in the future they might get that confused. And that's the world we live in. Then we looked at this and we said, wait a minute, what do I do with this truth? We must embrace the truth of what the Bible teaches about mankind. There is a gender binary. There is a male and a female. There is not a gender spectrum. There is a male and a female. We must embrace that biblically. But then we also said this, we also must embrace the call to help people to thrive in God's intended purpose for their lives. And our, our, our call isn't to shun people or to mock people or to make fun of people who are, who are confused over their gender, who are buying into the lies of this world. Our call is to love them. Our call is to show them God's best for them, what God intended for their lives. And we must contend for the truth in love. Then in week seven last week, I was really mean and I brought donuts that I didn't share with anybody. Because we asked this question, if God created everything, and then when he created it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was good, it was very good, it was perfect, but we look at our world today, and the world we live in today is far from perfect. The world we live in today is fallen. The world we live in today is corrupt. The world we live in today, there's suffering, and there's sin, and there's chaos. There's all kinds of things. What in the world happened? Where did evil come from? And we decided that evil is not something that is created. Evil is not the presence of something. Evil is what? The absence of something. Evil is the absence of holiness. Evil is the absence of perfection. Evil is the absence of goodness. And we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve fell because they bought the lie of Satan. 
And when they fell, they brought sin into the world. And when they brought sin into the world, they brought brokenness into the world. And their relationship with God was broken immediately. There was separation that took place. Their relationship with one another was broken immediately. That woman that you gave me gave me the food. There was a break with the creation. There was a break between brother and brother, Genesis chapter 4. There's a break with life, Genesis chapter 5. Death came into the world through sin. And so we've seen creation as it's been perfect, and we've seen creation corrupted. We've seen the kingdom of God, and I define the kingdom of God as just simply God's place with God's people living in God's presence under God's provision. That's God's kingdom. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see it how God intended it to be. In Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation chapter 18, all the way to the back of the Bible, we see it not as God intended it to be. We see it as it has fallen. But then, praise God, the Bible doesn't end in Revelation chapter 18. It still has several chapters left to go because there we find creation as God one day will restore it as he always intends it to be. And so now we have this problem that we live in a world that is filled with evil. How did we get here? We got here by the deliberate disobedience of one man, Adam, who plunged humanity into fallen sinfulness. And Adam's transgression had a catastrophic effect not only on himself, but on creation and everyone who would follow after him. However, God has no intention of leaving his creation in its fallen state. As a matter of fact, before he ever created the world, he already had a plan in place to redeem mankind and to restore his creation. Before he ever created it, he knew the fall of man did not catch God off guard. He is not in heaven wringing his hands trying to figure out what the next step is. God has always had a plan to redeem mankind and restore creation, and we're going to unpack that over the next couple weeks. We concluded last Sunday by stating that God has a solution to our sin problem. Just as one man, Adam, brought sin into the world, God sent one man into the world to save the world. He has a solution to our problem. Where did life come from? What happened? How do we fix it? Life came from God. Sin came into the world. Sin separates, sin spoils, sin spreads. What do we do about it? That's the question. Revela excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21 this morning. You said, I never thought we'd actually get to where we were headed. Romans chapter 5, if you're physically capable, would you stand with me as we read from God's word together? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. 
But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For, as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, bless the reading of your word, we pray. Open our eyes to understand it. Open our hearts to embrace it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Here's the question, million-dollar question. How can one man dying on a cross nearly 2,000 years ago affect my life and impact my eternity? That's a good question. It's a question we all need to wrestle with. How can one man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago affect my life and impact my eternity? That's a legitimate question. How did Jesus dying on a cross, how does that have anything to do with me? What does that have to do with my life now? What does it have to do with my eternity? The message of the book of Romans, which we've pulled our text out of today in chapter 5, is that forgiveness and access to God is provided through one person, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness and access to God, because we are separated from God by sin, the answer to our sin solution The answer to our sin problem is Jesus Christ. Throughout history, mankind has been trying to solve our sin problem. Thus, we have so many different religions. And every religion is man's attempt to make themselves right with God. It is man's understanding that we are somehow separated from this transcendent God, and we know that something must be done, and so religion is man's effort to do something to make ourselves right. It is works based. I must do something. But the Bible tells us that there is absolutely nothing we can do. The Bible teaches us from a biblical worldview that no matter how religious you are, you can never make yourself right with God. You can't be religious enough. You can't be pious enough. You can't do enough good things. But God has provided everything we need to make us right with him, to redeem us and restore us. So I go back to my question, how did a guy dying on a cross 2,000 years ago affect my life and impact my eternity? How does that work? When you think back over human history, there are many people who have made an impact on humanity. There are very few that have actually impacted all of humanity, but there are some that we could think of. We could think of scientists who have helped to invent medicines and technologies that have impacted humanity. We can think of statesmen or politicians who had an impact on large groups of humanity. We can think of military heroes who rose up in times of crisis to deliver groups of people. We might think of educators. We might think of social reformers. There are people who have had a great impact on humanity But of the list, there are two men who stand alone in their monumental impact on human life. One in a negative way and one in a positive way. 
Their names are Adam and Jesus of Nazareth. Adam, one man, brought sin and condemnation into the world through his disobedience. He brought sin into the world, and when he brought sin into the world, what else did he bring? Death. The second Adam, as Jesus is described in the New Testament, did not bring sin and death into the world. Christ brings redemption and justification. As Adam brought death into the world, Jesus Christ has brought life into the world. And when God looks at humanity, he sees only two types of people. And it has nothing to do with your appearance. When God looks at you, it has nothing to, when he sees you, he doesn't see color, he doesn't see size, he doesn't see nationality. He only sees two types of people. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are in Adam, meaning you are still in the flesh, you are still sinful, you are still separated from him, or you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have placed your faith in his sacrifice for you, and when he looks at you, he does not see you any longer. You know who he sees? He sees his son, Jesus Christ. He takes his righteousness, and when you place your faith in him, he wraps Jesus Christ around you, he indwells you, he wraps you with righteousness. So you are either in Adam and still in your sin, or you are in Christ. It's the only two types of people that God ever sees. There are a couple of facts that I want you to see in verse 12. Fact number one, it says this, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Here's fact number one, sin entered into the world through one man. We talked about this last week. What went wrong? What, what happened? One man had one prohibition from God. He had all the provision in the world. He had God's presence. He had everything. God said, just don't do one thing. And he went against it. And when he disobeyed God's one prohibition, he brought sin into the world. And that sin fundamentally changed Adam. He began to experience the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. And Adam was no longer complete. Adam was missing something. He was missing holiness. He was missing his perfection. Thus, evil came into the world. Not the presence of something, but the absence of something. And when he did so, his fundamental nature changed. And everyone who followed him, that sinful nature has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. We are all, as human beings, born with a sinful nature because one guy messed up. And I know what you're thinking. That doesn't seem fair to me, does it? I wasn't even there. Forget talking about what happened 2,000 years ago. That was over 6,000 years ago. How is it fair that he messed up and I have a sin nature? How is it fair that he messed up and I'm separated from God? I don't think that's very fair. Hold on to that concept of fairness because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Because just as sin entered into the world and death through sin, so righteousness entered into the world. Sin entered through one man. Guess what? So does salvation. Sin entered into the world through one man. Fact number two, because sin entered into the world, death followed. Just keep reading verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. 
When God told Adam, don't eat from that tree, what did he say was the stated penalty for eating from the tree? Or else you will surely die. You will die. Did Adam and Eve die? How? Two ways. Spiritually they died. Physically they died. Spiritually they died because they were separated from that perfect relationship with God. Physically, they ultimately died, even in spite of the lie that Satan told them, oh, surely you're not going to die. There's no consequence. There's no judgment for going against God's word. But they did. They died spiritually, and eventually they died physically. Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Adam lived, he had children, and he died. And they died. Fact number three, death has spread to all men because all have sinned. Death spreads to all men, and so death spreads, sin separates, sin spoils, and sin spreads. What's the percentage of, what's the death rate today? Doc and I were talking about this Friday at breakfast. What's the death rate right now? How many people are born actually die? Yeah, it's, it's about 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's two notable exceptions in the Bible of people who just went to be with God, Enoch and Elijah. But other than that, if you're born eventually, unless Christ comes back, here's the news, you're going to die. I'm not a medical professional, but the odds are in my favor that I'm accurate on that one. 100%. Everyone dies. Why does everyone die? Because everyone dies. Sins. How do I know everyone sins? Because everyone dies. Sin came into the world, death through sin, and that sin spread. Death is universal because death has a universal cause. We all sinned in Adam. There's a third type of death, though. There's spiritual death, there's physical death, there's also eternal death. Spiritual death is separation from God. Physical death is separation from the body and the spirit. Eternal death is separation from God eternally. Separation from everything that is good forever. And God hates sin. Why is God so adamantly against sin? Why does he hate it so much? Why? Because sin separates you from him. And he didn't create you to be separated from him. He created you to live in perfect harmony with him, not just for a few days, not just for 90 years here on earth. He created you to live forever with him. And your sin separates you from him. And he hates sin. And so what has he done about it? Fact four, just as through Adam we have all sinned, so through Jesus Christ we may all be made right with him. Verse 15, for the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many? Adam's one sin spread to everybody. Everybody's sin sent Jesus to the cross. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. And the one act of transgression by Adam impacted us all, but greater still is the one act of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only reversed the curse by forgiving and cleansing us, but he's also provided a way for redeemed men to share in his fullness and his glory. 
Adam's sin has one devastating effect, death. Jesus' one act of righteousness has immeasurable, abounding effects on our lives. Verse 18, notice what it says. Through one transgression there resulted condemnation. Through one act of righteousness there resulted justification. One act brought condemnation. We are condemned because we are sinners separated from God. We are guilty. Through one act, the whole world is condemned. But it also says this, through one act, the whole world can be justified. One act brought sin into the world. One act can make us right. Before Christ, sin reigned in the world. Now what reigns? Grace reigns. Verse 21 The answer to our sin problem is the cross. Quickly, I need us to ask this question. Why can't God just ignore our sin? Why can't he just pretend like it never happened? Why is it that God can't just look away or sweep our sin under the rug? God's God. He can do anything he wants, right? So why can't he just pretend like I never sinned? Why can't he just pretend like it's all okay and we'll just pretend like it just never happened? Why can't he do that? That, that would seem to be an easy solution, right? There's one thing that God can't do, and it's not build a rock so big that he can't lift it. There's one thing that God can't do. You know what it is? Can't go against his own character. If he went against his own character, he would not be God. God cannot go against his character, and his character is not only love, his character is holiness, his character is just, his character is right. So God cannot turn a blind eye to sin because his justice demands that sin be punished. He cannot look at evil with favor. So then, how can he pardon sinners without the same time encouraging our sin? How can he, at the same time, demonstrate his justice in punishing sin and also demonstrate his grace in pardoning sin? How can he do both at the same time? How can he punish sin and pardon sin at the same time? How can a holy God admit sinful people into his presence without corrupting his presence? The answer? The cross. Jesus Christ. Before the very foundation of the world, he was slain for your sins and for mine. Before God ever created the world and put man in the center of it and gave man free will, he knew man would sin against him. And he did not want man to live forever in that way, so he said, here's the plan. Jesus, you're going to go to earth. You're going to take on flesh. You're going to become one of them. You're going to live a perfect life. And after about 30 years, you're going to pay the price that they can't pay for themselves. You're going to die in their place. I'm going to punish you because justice says I must punish sin, but I want to pardon them because I love them. I want to demonstrate my grace and my mercy. So instead of punishing them, I'm going to punish you. We are condemned. But God is about reconciliation. God's not about leaving you in your sin. God's not about leaving you separated from him. God's not about condemning you. God's about loving you and reconciling you to him. Chapter 5, verse 10, if we were to back up, because we started in verse 12, we started with what word? Therefore. 
And if you guys know anything, never start reading in Scripture with the word therefore because it's referring back to something. So in your own time this week, read verses 1 through 11. Because the whole first three chapters of, of Romans is about condemnations. It's about how sinful we are. Then in verse three, chapter 3, verse 21, it begins to tell us what God has done about our condemnation. And his name is Jesus Christ. And in verse 10 of chapter 5, it says we have received reconciliation that on the cross, Jesus was reconciling us to himself. How did he reconcile us? He did so by redemption. He paid a price for us. What was the, pi what was the price? The wages of sin is death. The price was his own son. He sacrificed his own son. Jesus substituted himself for my sin. He took my place. He took your place. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as gold and silver that you were redeemed. Hebrews tells us that we were redeemed not with the blood of rams or bulls or goats, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus assumed our obligation. He assumed our obligation to carry out the law. He assumed our liability for obeying the law. And he assumed the debt that we owed. And in doing so, he satisfied perfectly the justice of God. Now, does that sound fair to you? That someone would take your punishment for you? That someone would be stripped and whipped and nailed to a cross and killed even though they had done nothing wrong? but they were there because of what you have done and what I've done. That sound fair at all to anybody? That it wasn't just one transgression that Jesus did that for, he did it for every transgression. Jesus never sinned once, he was perfect. But God punished him in our place. You say, it's not fair that Adam sinned and I got salvation, or I got sinfulness. It's not really fair that that you sinned and Jesus got your sacrifice. And yet that's exactly what happens. Isaiah 53.10 says God was pleased to crush him for you. Therefore, we have justification, and I finish with this. Justification is a legal term. It's a judicial term that says that the judge declares you to be clean, to be free, to be not guilty. Now, how can God declare us to be not guilty? Because he punished his son in our place. Because the sin has been taken care of. The debt has been paid. And the Bible says that you can be justified just as if you'd never sinned. Now, how does that happen? How do we get to Romans chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do I have to do? And we're back to our religions of the world. We're back to our worldviews. Where did the world come from? What's gone wrong with it? How do we fix it? And all the religions in the world say, I have to do something. I have to be right. I have to go through the ritual. I have to be good enough. All worldviews depend on that except for one. And that one is based on the authoritative, sufficient word of God that says there's absolutely nothing you can do but God loves you so much he's done everything necessary. And salvation doesn't come through our religion. Salvation comes simply by faith. It's by placing our faith in what God has already done for us. 
And so the question is, when God looks at you, does he see Adam or does he see Jesus Christ? When he looks at you, are you still in your sin? Are you still separated from him because you haven't gotten to the point where you say, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, I acknowledge my sin separates me from you? Or have you gotten to the point where you say, God, there's nothing that I can do about my sinfulness, but I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. You punished him in my place. He was my substitute. I place my faith in what he's done for me to make me right with you. When you get to that place, then God wraps you. He imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ around you. And he no longer sees you as Adam. He sees you as his son. He sees you as his daughter. We have a problem. It's called sin. It's not a benign problem. It is a problem that is spread to all mankind. It is a matter of life and death, spiritual life, physical life, eternal life. How do we solve our sin problem? We can try to be religious, but it'll never do it. But God has solved our problem for us. He did it on the cross. What can justify us? Salvation comes by grace through faith. Grace alone through faith alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today's message has just led us to a confrontation with the gospel, with good news. And Father, for some of us, it was not new news. It's news that we've known for a long time. It's a story that we're familiar with. It's a story that has impacted our lives and changed our lives forever. For some of us, it wasn't new. But Father, I pray that we would never grow weary of hearing the gospel proclaimed. I pray that we would never grow weary of celebrating and being reminded of what you've done to make us right with you. Because Father, it's so easy for us to walk through life and just forget about our own sinfulness and how much you hate sin. And we become callous to our sin and we become comfortable in our sin. And Father, it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And so for those of us that this message isn't new, I just pray that it would be a refreshment to our hearts, to our souls, to just remind ourselves of the cost of our freedom, the cost of our salvation, and just cause us to just raise our hands to you in praise and say, God, thank you. I am not worthy. In my own eyes, I don't deserve what you did for me. It wasn't fair that you sent Jesus to the cross for me, but that's exactly what you did because you deem me worthy to be with you. And Father, I praise you for that. But Father, for some of us, it might have been new news today, this good news that even though our sin has separated us and our sin leads to death, we do not have to fear death because you have conquered it. The death and the and the grave, they call you victorious because Jesus Christ didn't just die on a cross taking our sin. He rose again, proving that he is the perfect son of God. And Father, I pray for those who today have heard this news, perhaps for the first time or in a new way for the first time, and their hearts are being drawn to it. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just continue to draw them. Help them to understand that they don't need to be in Adam anymore, that they can be in Christ, and that's no small thing. That's no trivial matter. That's an eternal matter. 
Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room right now, anyone listening online or watching online who's never trusted in you, that they would come to the point where they would say, God, I believe you created me to spend eternity with you. And I believe that I'm a sinner, both by nature and by choice. I, I choose to sin, God. I choose to go against you. And my sin has separated me from you. And my sin is going to lead to my physical death one day. And if I'm not careful, if we don't do something, it's going to lead to my eternal separation from you. And God, you don't want that. That's not what you intend for me. That's not your best for me. Father, I acknowledge that there's nothing I can do. I can't be religious enough or pious enough to make myself right with you. That's why you sent Jesus Christ. He became my substitute. He died in my place. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for me to make me right with you. And God, I want to be right with you. And so I, I accept the free gift that God has given me through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for my forgiveness. Now help me walk in newness of life. Help me be that new creature. Old has passed away and everything has become new. I'm no longer in Adam. Now I'm in Christ. Father, I pray for those who, who that was their heart's call today. Is just say those words or something similar like those to you. Acknowledge their need for you and they cry out for you. God, you are our living hope. We praise you because you are alive. You are a God who is transcendent and a God who is imminent, who loves us and has done everything necessary to make us right with you. Lord, we just want to worship you in the next few minutes with this song. We want to conclude our time of worship just by praising you and saying you are our living hope. Father, for those of us who this wasn't new news today, let it just ring forth from our voices in our lives that you are our God and our Savior. And Father, I pray for those who perhaps today have trusted in you for the first time, that they would respond and say, God, I love you. I want to live for you. Father, be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me? We're just going to conclude living hope. Let's sing it like we mean it. If if as I've been talking today, if that is something that you've done for the first time and you want to talk to somebody about that, you want to pray with somebody about that, there'll be some of us down front while we're singing, just come down and say, Pastor, can we talk more about that? But let's just praise God as we go out. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb in desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written, Jesus Christ, my living hope, who could
heart could fathom such boundless grace. The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven, the King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my Christ. 
He's your living hope. Let's go share him with somebody who doesn't know him this week, all right? Hey, if you want to talk more, my email is in the worship folder, Bob at FBC Tampa. Love to talk to you. You guys have a great week. Guest stop by the guest reception. If you want to help with amazing love, grab a pan. Love you guys. We lift up the song, the song of the saved. It's the song of the one who's been rescued from the grave. So sing it out loud and sing it out strong to the one who is worthy. We lift up the song.